0: Hey there everybody, this is Dan Figella here with Tech Emergence, where we interview researchers, entrepreneurs, and investors at the crossroads of technology and psychology. And today I speak again um, with one of the fantastic staff over at Braingate at Brown today. On the line with me is Dr. Beata Yarosevich, who's been with them for over four years now, did her postdoc work. Um, Uh, Did her her own postdoc work at the University of Pittsburgh Pittsburgh with Andrew Schwartz, uh, which is another uh, fantastic BMI lab as well. And today we're going to talk a little bit about um, the uh, science behind BMI and how the connections function from the neural to the digital world. Dr. Beata, how are you today? Good. Thanks for having me. Of course. Glad to have you on. Um, And and I I know that your particular area of work, you're one of the research staff at BrainGate, um, and your domain uh, is... Figuring out how to decode, so to speak, these signals that come from the brain. So f- some of the folks who, who maybe aren't uh, completely familiarized with BrainGate's work, uh, BrainGate puts actual electrodes into the brain, and then has to, of course, make sense of those to move robotic arms, make a mouse move on a on a screen, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I wanted you, uh, Dr. Beata, just because this is your area, speak a little bit to that science. I realize how complex it is, but even a little bit of shedding light on how that works. How do we take some, one of these blips that was going to some neuron and make sense of it to move an arm or do something functional?
1: Sure. So, um, like every neuron in your body, neurons have a potential across their membrane, or sorry, like every cell in your body. Um, but unlike other cells in your body, neurons can rapidly switch that potential, um, over the scale of a millisecond or so, and we can record that with a wire placed near the electrode, or placed near the neuron. Um, and that looks like a little spike, also called an action potential. Yep. So we have an array of electrodes placed in the motor cortex, in the hand and arm area of motor cortex, which is a part of your brain that controls voluntary movement. And we find that neurons there will, for example, increase or decrease their firing rates um, with respect to certain planned um, or intended movements person is, for example, imagining opening their hand or closing their hand, there will be a subset of neurons that increase their firing rate for opening or closing the hand. And we can spy on the neural activity and figure out, based on that neural activity, whether the person intends to open or close their hand, just based on which neurons become more or less active. And we can calibrate this decoder just by asking the person to imagine opening or closing their hand, seeing what patterns come out, and then just creating a map or an algorithm that will later be able to decode that information in real time just by spying on the neurons activity. This can also happen for um, movement in, for example, three-dimensional extrinsic space, not just for hands opening and closing, but also if the person is asked to imagine that they're moving their hand up in space or down in space, there will be different patterns of neural activity. Different neurons will increase or decrease their firing rates in certain ways that we can then um, used to calibrate the decoder and then later use the patterns of neural activity as they're coming in at each moment in time to figure out where the person wants to move their hands, whether they want to open their clothes.
0: Uh, and, and how different is this, Dr. Viada, from person to person? Um, I can imagine You know, maybe there's some similarities, but the exact pattern and location and intensity of one person's hand opening thought and another person's hand opening thought might be a little bit different, given the complexity of all that gray stuff we have upstairs. Um, How does that differ between the folks that you guys have worked with? Yeah,
1: it absolutely differs um, across individuals. depending on where the electrode array is placed For sure. it even varies from day to day in a given individual because the brain um, being a squishy thing that moves and pulsates uh, that sure the electrode does. can actually move with respect to where the neurons are that they're recording so we have to redo this calibration um, at least every day and possibly even more frequently wow um, But it's really not that big of a deal because we just have the person imagine that they're making movements for a couple of minutes and this is sufficient to get a good initial estimate of um, that mapping from neural patterns to intended movement intention and then um, we can keep refining that as um as they actually control their um, computer cursor or robotic arm and um, keep updating our um, our estimate of those um, those relationships
0: Got it. So, huh? And so, to correct me if I'm wrong here, but you'll have someone imagine the opening and closing of the hand. You'll make sure you're re- recording that particular activity. Have them imagine, uh, again, you had mentioned three-dimensional space. So, moving a hand out or pulling a hand in, or uh, rotation, or something along those lines. Um, and and once those calibrations have been made, and we've gotten to see the general location and dynamics of that thought uh, to those neural patterns, which apparently de- varies day by day, if not uh, sooner, which is a really interesting topic we'll have to talk about, um, then you will you plug in, no pun intended here, the uh, robotic arm or potentially the capacity to leverage the mouse, and then make it so that mouse goes up when this spike happens, mouse goes down when this spike happens, and then let them take it and run with it and, and just make sure that your calibrations are correct. Is that is that a safe assessment here? Yes, that's right. Got it. Now, um, so how would that work with a mouse? So clearly, uh, you know, we can imagine the human mind may have somewhere that has, you know, th- there's there's some location. Maybe it's not this nerve, but there's some location that might be correlated to, as you had mentioned, arm or hand movement, uh, the 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 dexterous motions therein. Um, but there's no brain spot calibrated to mice and emails. So when it comes to interacting with uh, a screen. How, how, where are you pulling that data? In other words, it makes sense. Okay, motor cortex and wrist and arm, are you having them imagine arm movements that you're then turning into mouse-on-screen movements? Or how are we hooking up that? Because it makes sense, sort of arm to an arm-like reality, but are you still asking the arm to dictate non-arm realities? Um. Yeah. So
1: in a way, when you and I are... Or an able-bodied person is controlling a cursor on a computer screen. Generally they're either doing that by moving a mouse around and then clicking their yep. finger on the clicker. Um, so we can ask the person to just imagine that they're doing that wow. and put a mouse under their hand to make it a little bit more vivid for them. Or we can have them imagine that they're moving a finger on a trackpad and then clicking by pressing down with their thumb or um, really anything that, that feels intuitive to them. So, for example, they might even imagine that they're holding their finger out where the cursor is and moving their hand sort of vertically on huh. the screen. Um, and as long as they keep that imagery consistent with when we calibrated our decoder, they can just continue using that
0: same imagery. Wow. Um, nice and natural and intuitive to them. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. So there's a lot of ways to skin that cat, so to speak. Um, whether you're imagining your arm pointed out straight and moving or whether you're imagining moving the mouse on an actual uh, pad underneath you, um, whatever the case may be, so long as you can calibrate what those consistent thoughts uh, translate to in terms of electrical activity, you can then correlate and tie that back to the screen and then have those factors influence it in the same way. Yep, exactly. Wow. Um, The
1: the blessing and the curse about this um, whole motor cortex hand arm area is that there's a sort of salt and pepper arrangement neural tuning. So that um, you're pretty much guaranteed, no matter where you plunk the electrodes down within <laughs> this, you know, couple of centimeters, um, that you'll find some neurons that care about certain movements and other neurons that care about other certain movements and so forth. So it just, um, we just see what happens naturally when the person's imagining these movements and we generally can find nice patterns that separate all these different.
0: Wow. Um, now it, it seems to me as though that opens up just tremendous. Now, of course, there's some serious limitations with having to recalibrate on a daily basis, and I'm familiar with the fact that leaving the the um, leaving the electrodes in the same spot often has sort of diminishing returns in terms of not being able to yield or interact the same way with the the um, the squishy stuff upstairs. There, it, it, it sounds as though because there's so many ways to skin the cat, you could you could hypothetically. Almost tune the brain activity to sort of whatever you wanted, um, assuming you could get enough depth. I, I imagine the the specific area of arm and wrist in the motor cortex may not be able to translate, you know, everything we'd wanted to. But but it sounds as though, you know, if it was, you know, if there were, if there was enough depth there, we might be able to get to all sorts of more complex motions, so long as somebody was thinking consistently. You know, maybe in a far off future, as far as Moving a vehicle, as far as, you know, playing a more complex video game of some kind, you know, when they can jump, they can move left, they can look right, they can shoot, uh, they can point. Uh, So long as those thoughts, those imaginations, those motions are calibrated and correlated to the same brain areas, then they could be immersed in controlling whatever it was that you could calibrate consistently and then tie to consistently. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point,
1: actually, we have a term um, that we call embodiment, when the person really feels like they're not imagining any particular body movements anymore, but really c- controlling the cursor directly, or controlling the robotic arm directly, just by imagining how they want it to move, um, we call that embodiment, they've successfully embodied the thing as though it's part of their organism. Yeah. It- and, um, and there's an interesting study that came out, um, possibly a couple decades ago in a virtual reality video game where um, someone was um, controlling different degrees of freedom, different arms on a lobster body, I believe, um, Uh. using different EMGs, electromyographs, in various random places on their body. And they eventually felt like they were just controlling those arms directly and they they knew exactly how to move each of the six arms without even thinking about... um, Exactly what muscles they're flexing on their own body. It just felt like they were directly embodying them. So absolutely, sometime in the future, we might have not
0: just two, but three or several more arms that we can control just by thinking about them. Yeah, I mean, I I don't see how we couldn't, especially once it becomes uh, viable. For example, I mean, there's there's you know quantitative traders looking at so many computer monitors. It's ridiculous. You know, if they were if they could use some abdominal muscle to zoom in or clip or move or shuffle or uh, click or not click, um, and and be able to to sense that embodiment and that that consistent calibration with machinery on a different level, even even more so than we can with limbs. Um, that's uh, that's positively fascinating. So yeah, embodiment, I think is a great term. Now, how how are how are we working on that whole continuous calibration issue? You as the uh, one of the researchers focusing on making sense of this. Uh, this information that is coming directly from the brain. Um, how how do we deal with and juggle this fact that we're recalibrating every single day? Is there is there light at the end of that tunnel, or is it like, hey, you know, yeah. even when we have you know fully uh, full jumpsuits that you can just control like a regular old human body that you can hop into, we're still going to need to uh, have them think through it for a couple minutes and then eventually jump in. You know, how do we how do we get out of that precipice? Yeah, it's
1: actually. these methods could be extended to more degrees of freedom, more uh, dimensions of neural control, um, and that is by um, having the person use like a point-and-click interface to select targets from an array of possibilities. So, for example, if they're browsing the web, or if they're entering text by using some sort of communication interface, we can um, deduce afterwards what their movement intentions were at each moment in time, based on where they click next, and all we need in order to Calibrate the decoder, we need to know what their movement intentions were, and we need to know what the patterns of neural activity were. So, we can actually take the neural activity that's acquired while they're controlling the um, BCI for a practical purpose and use that data to recalibrate the decoder itself and just keep it recalibrated constantly. Um, we're calling this unsupervised decoder calibration because you don't really need to pre specify targets for the person. They can actually
0: select their own targets, and you can still use that data to keep it calibrated. Oh. Um, so, what are some of the other simply because this is again your your world? Um, what are some of the other interesting hurdles that we're coming up against, or that we inevitably will have to come up against in terms of this decoding, in terms of making sense of the information that is coming directly from the brain? Yeah.
1: So right now, one of the um, assumptions that we make is that neurons are tuned to intended movements in extrinsic space. And there's a lot of variability left over in um, neural activity that's not accounted for by that model. So one thing that we need to do is figure out exactly what those neurons are doing, where all of that extra variance is coming from, and how to explain it. Um, and if we can interpret that activity as closely as possible to what the um, the brain actually uses um, that information for, then we'll have a lot more information about the person's movement intent. And one of the reasons we make that simplifying assumption now is that um, computer processors are still pretty slow, and in order to make um, all these computations happen in a very small time scale, say every 20 milliseconds or so, to keep the real-time feedback going, yeah. um, we really need to simplify the math a lot. But as processors get faster, we can start adding in more information that we already know, like the, the fact that neurons um, also care about joint angles, joint angle velocities, um, and all these other things that um, that are not just three-dimensional or n-dimensional movements in extrinsic
0: space. Uh, so
1: adding that information will also hopefully help make the system
0: more powerful, more robust down the line. So we have something functional, uh, but it is based on an, an, an uh, assumption that cuts the mustard, it does the job, um, but ultimately we realize we are not taking into account the totality of how the brain uh, correlates to movement, what it is that it picks up on. And once we can understand those more, we have processors that can handle that data as well, we may be able to have a uh, greater and quicker sense of control in that embodiment that you spoke of, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Um, now, I know we we're, uh, we're, we got about five minutes here, so I figured I'd, I'd run this one by you as well. I know there's a lot of teams, and you and I had caught up uh, before we had gotten on the mic with respect to um, Henderson and some of the folks at Stanford, uh, Case Western, a, a lot, a lot, a lot of smart brains in our country and in, invariably in, in other nations as well, working away on these problems, in five, ten years, um, w- you know, based on the, the nuts we're trying to crack, based on the problems we're really working on solving... What might we hope to be the yield? What might we hope the world to look like? What might we hope to allow for um, in the coming five or ten with all of this B- BMI research at work now?
1: Yeah, so a couple of the things that are coming up pretty soon are um, making the system wireless. So right now we have, um, we have our electrode array con- connected to a connector that's um, mounted on the skull with some screws, and then it's transcutaneous, meaning it crosses the skin and the person has to be literally plugged into a cable that sends that information yeah. over to a, a whole cart of computers. Yep. Um, so we have some collaborators um, here in the engineering department at Brown, art, led by Arturo um, that are working on making the system wireless and fully implantable, and then having the processors um, get miniaturized down to something that's portable, that can be taken with the person from room to room, something that can fit on a belt pack, essentially. Um, so that'll make the system more aesthetically acceptable. It'll allow them to um, move around with it. And it will hopefully help to eliminate some of the noise that we see with um, with the cable being connected every day. It'll hopefully reduce um, the dependence on a caregiver or a technician to be present in order to actually allow the person to use it. So it'll help restore independence to people with paralysis.
0: Got it. Okay. Um, yeah. So in terms of uh, one level of functionality is... We won't need a, a gargantuan cord coming out the, the top of the, the head there and uh, hooking up to a, a gargantuan cart of computers. Again, I, I imagine a lot of this has to do with processors and, and the efficiency of tech, but we'll be able to have someone operating um, via BMI sort of without that physical connection. So that's one. Uh, in terms of the, the other physical problems that we're working away on the movement of an arm to drink coffee famous example with kathy there mouse on screen um movement of a hand university of ohio not all that long ago uh, what what are again what are the other kind of physical problems or or sort of the the objectives of the yield again will be someone a, pra- a paralyzed person will be able to do blank or a person with this uh condition will be able to do blank what, what are we at least working away on that might seem at least somewhat reasonable in the next decade or so
1: Western is connecting the brain gate system to um, a functional electrical stimulation system for the person's own muscles. So if the person still has residual motor nerves, even if there's a disconnection between the brain and those motor nerves, um, we're still able to stimulate those nerves and cause the muscles to flex and extend and so forth. So if we can share the brain gate system with this functional electrical stimulation system, um, Ultimately, we're hoping to be able to reanimate the person's own limb by having them just imagine how they want to move. So that's in the stream as well. And um, nice. our Stanford collaborators are focused right now on trying to make the system um, just as powerful as possible, taking all of that information that I was telling you about it, that is still present in the neural activity,
0: making the system work really robustly and really well. Yeah, more, more, um, more resolution, so to speak, from all that noise coming up from uh, from upstairs there. So for someone in, let's say, Kathy's uh, condition, who's more or less locked in um, to a physical body but, uh, that, that really can't respond in the way that she'd like, uh, but to a mind that, that still works, in a decade or so, maybe she'd be drinking coffee or at least moving that arm with her own uh, musculature as opposed to with the, the robot, potentially, or maybe she, yeah. she might have... Both arms, maybe she might be able to control uh, without having the wires directly in the head. Control a uh, a wheelchair of some kind to kind of get around her room and use those arms. Are, are these reasonable ten years out for someone in her condition? Um, I'm not
1: sure about the exact timeline. Yeah, of course, had, so of course, all that we're yep. um, we prognostic. soon.
0: Cool. Um, so the wheelchair movement is. I, I didn't know if anybody was working on that explicitly, but that might be something else in the works somewhere.
1: Sure, yeah, And that one's actually pretty easy. If um, we have control over a computer cursor, then the computer application
0: can be one that controls the movement of the wheelchair, um, and thereby the person can move the wheelchair just by controlling the computer. Got it. Okay, so thinking through those same motions, whether it's the pointing of the arm, whether it's the, the scrolling or clicking, calibrating those same consistent uh, images in their mind to consistent outputs that can then move a uh, wheelchair forward, backward, rotate sideways, etc. Understood. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Biotta, thanks so much for taking the time and being able to get into a little bit of the nitty-gritty and the science. I know you probably could have gone on for uh, you know 10 or 20 times the length of our podcast today, but I I sincerely appreciate um, your input and insights. Um, I figured I'd I'd let you open it up to you know if people want to learn a little bit more about what's going on with BrainGate or even where you like to go for news and and real updates in terms of the research in this world. I mean, I have my Google Alerts set to Brain Machine Interface, um, but uh, if there's any cool resources you'd like to share, I'm I'm sure the audience would be more than happy to hear them.
1: Yeah, sure. You can definitely go to our website, which is at um, braingate2.org, or you can feel free to email me if
0: you'd like, theata at brown.edu. Oh, that's a really easy one. That's, that's remarkably easy. Wow. Okay, cool. Um, well, you, you, uh, you folks heard it from, uh, from the lady yourself, Dr. Beata. Thank you again so much for taking the time here at Tech Emergence. Yeah, thank you. It's my pleasure. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker, Uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential. then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, If you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience... And be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, More than anything else, always feel free to reach out. If you can find us via email, um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Uh, So with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week.